Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major and in this episode we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. This is the sixth part of the reading and we're continuing chapter two. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can not only support this podcast but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 2 continued. 31st of December, I wrote in my log, is there any way that I can jibe more quickly and efficiently? I designed my running gear so that it would be safe for a single-hander to handle if a gale blew up or if the heading got out of control and the running sail came aback and also so that one person could hoist the sail without accidents to gear in any conditions. The spinnaker used in ocean racing I consider an unseamanlike sail, even with a full crew aboard. It is quite usual, or at least seems to be, for it or some of its gear to break up within two or three hours of the sail being set. It makes me shudder to think of what a single-hander would have to deal with if he had a big spinnaker set and his yacht broached to in a gale squall while he was asleep. My own scheme of booming out to windward a running sail hanked on to the topmast stay is an operation I divide into two parts. First, I rig the pole and manoeuvre it into position by means of three ropes, a fore and an aft guy and a topping lift. Having rigged the pole, I then hank on the sail and attach a sheet which I lead in the usual way to the cockpit winch, then attach a line to the clue of the sail and lead this line to the outboard end of the pole, thence to the mast end of the pole and thence again down to the deck. This line is used to haul out the clue to the end of the pole. Then the sail is hoisted in the ordinary way. If a suitable jib is being used on the lee side when reaching or on the wind, only the one sail, the runner, need be hoisted in order to have a running rig. To rig the pole and hoist the running sail is no longer or more difficult an operation than the standard setting of a spinnaker on an ocean racing yacht. However, I went on in my log, when a shift of wind demands a jibe, it takes me at present on my own between one and a half and two hours of pretty intensive activity, brain as well as body. The pole has to be unshipped, unrigged and housed on the deck. Another pole has to be rigged on the other side of the yacht. The running sail has to be dropped on the starboard side, but the jib has to be dropped on the port side and shifted over to the starboard side. The big runner has to be hanked on afresh on the port side, resheeted and outhauled again. At present, I cannot see how to improve on this except possibly by having a jib exactly the same size and shape as the big running sail, then it would not be necessary to transfer the jib from one side to the other, or the running sail. The drawback of this arrangement would be that a jib as big as the running sail would be too big for sailing to windward in a breeze, and it would have to be changed down to a smaller jib if that happened. I was now badly handicapped by having only one pole left, which necessitated moving it from one side of the deck to the other during a jibe. Even the smaller 22-foot pole was undoubtedly an awkward customer for one person to handle on his own in a seaway. On the 1st of January I wrote, Here is wishing folk happiness in 1971. I get the impression from the news, the newspapers and the radio that last year folk were letting life go by without enjoying it, were wrapped up in discontent with their lot. I wish this year they may be always looking for happiness and the joy of living. Sailing single-handed 
gives one a very detached view of the human condition. I watched two more jibes step by step to see if I could improve the performance, but all I could see was that having only one pole caused a big holdup. With two poles, both could be kept rigged and at the ready. At 20 hundred hours, at 23 degrees 30 minutes north, 19 degrees 30 minutes west, I thought the Gypsy Moth had sailed into the real trade wind zone. The wind has a more pressing sound about it, though only two or three knots faster, I noted. I don't suppose I have a hope of faintest chance of knocking off 4,000 miles in 20 days. Gypsy Moth is in the trade wind belt tonight, I reckon, and she has 2,360 square foot of sail set and is only making six to seven knots. However, succeed or fail, I think it is a great lark, the idea, and I am looking forward to a grand sail. On the 4th of January, I made a jibe in the early hours of the morning, which went without a hitch, and I was back in my bunk after only 40 minutes for raising or dropping of 1,860 square feet of sail and trimming the sheets and vangs. If I can get my other pole repaired, and I believe I could, if necessary, get it done locally by straightening it out, cutting it at the kinks and stuffing it closely fitted with a length of bamboo pole, I reckon I can speed up the rigging of running gear to cut the time of the operation from hours to minutes. The pole I unshipped last night for jibing is lying on the deck, ready rigged, and could be in place, footed to the mast and swung outboard in 10 minutes. In one way, I would like to take a month to reach Bissau so as to get my spinnaker drill real snappy. Perhaps I shall, if this wind continues. Once, when Gypsy Moth woke me with her old trick of coming up in the wind out of control in a squall, I dropped the mizzen. Gypsy Moth's pull sideways on the hull was after the rudder, even though the topsail was sheeted forward of the rudder. I was sorry at having to drop the sail and turned so as to put the wind 25 degrees after the beam, because Gypsy Moth had been tearing along with the speed I wanted. Could I think of any solution to her tricks not requiring less sail? At 05.30 I altered course a little so as to be nearly wind abeam when the wind freshened. I wanted to see if the self-steering gear had control without the mizzen, whether coming up closer to the wind bettered the speed, but it looked as though the mizzen was necessary to get the speed I wanted, or else I must pay off downwind and pole out. That night I led the running ends of the tiller tackles right through the companionway to my bunk with the idea of controlling runaway slews from my bunk. It worked well and saved me from having to get out of my bunk, but I had to wake up several times to use the bunk controls. I thought a boomed sail would have helped. When awake, I could hear a striker, slewing breaker coming from some way off and some time in advance. Big ones came with a roar, apparently bringing their own individual gusts with them. By 5th of January, I was only a few hundred miles from the starting point of my cross-Atlantic race against the clock and keeping a good lookout for the heavy steamer traffic which closes Cape Verde on its way to and from Western Europe and the Mediterranean and West African Cape trade routes, traffic which has increased considerably since the closure of the Suez Canal. There were other dangers. I was hit by a flying fish when I stepped into the cockpit, I wrote indignantly in my log at midnight, and it certainly startled me in the dark. Then, when I looked along the side deck with a torch, a squid glared at me with huge circular eyes. No bull bass, though, or because when I looked later, he had gone. But my cheerfulness left me when I worked out the next noon position. 
A day's run of 205.5 miles seemed just tolerable enough, though I would need a greater excess over 200 miles on good days to make up for the bad ones, the calms, storms and all. But the distance made good in a straight line between sun fixes was only 187.5 miles, a drop of 18 miles below the distance sailed. This was bad, but there was little I could do about it now, and I had all my work cut out to get to the Giba estuary. The coast of Portuguese Guinea, low-lying and heavily shoaled, has always had a bad reputation among seamen, and many ships were lost in the old days of sail as they tried to take this turning point too close or were driven onto it by contrary winds. Its lack of prominent landmarks makes pilotage difficult, and this was not helped while I was there by thick haze which clung to the sea all day. At night the warm, moisture-laden air condensed to leave a clear, starlit sky, but Gypsy Moth's sails ran with streams of water soaking me through on one occasion. There was so little wind about that my heart began to sink at the thought of starting from way up the estuary and attempting to make that magic 200 miles from the very first day. I drifted in at a wretched two knots, picking my way through the maze of unmarked shoals, and not even the welcoming cheerfulness of Christopher Dahl and TV cameraman Paul Bereff, when they came out to meet me in a Portuguese naval patrol vessel, could shift the black dog from my back. Gypsy Moth anchored off Keo at the mouth of the Giba estuary three hours after midnight on the 7th of January. In the morning, Christopher and Paul persuaded me to visit Keo so that I could pose for their cameras with the local residents and their shy, crinkly-haired young. There could hardly be a stronger contrast than between my port of departure, Plymouth, and my port of arrival with its 90 inhabitants. The heated atmosphere, the sun-baked reddish soil of the dirt roadway, and the dark green tropical trees. Just before midday, Gypsy Moth weighed anchor and we set off for Bissau. It was a long, long passage which ended at daylight the next day and Gypsy Moth was not at anchor off Bissau with the sail stowed until 10.30. After a brandy and a sleep for a few minutes, I was visited by Commodore Bastos of the Portuguese Navy. He was also the Vice-Governor of the State. Commander Rodriguez, the Chief Naval Engineer, the Electronics Specialist, the police, customs and health officers, the latter's title was translated to me as sanitary man, and we had a long discussions. The Commodore could not have been more friendly and helpful, and he offered to do all the necessary repairs to the Gypsy Moth, and by mid-afternoon the two booms, the pulpit and the BBC's cine camera, which had had a bashing from the waves, had all been dismantled and taken to the naval workshops. At midnight, I was taken to see four craftsmen working on the boom, which was already half finished and looked to be an excellent job of work. After lunch with Tenente Louis Noguera, a handsome man with a magnificent black beard who had been detailed by the naval commander to look after me and who was excellent company and surely a social lion in Cascais, his hometown in Portugal, I returned to Gypsy Moth, which in the afternoon was swarming with craftsmen, dismantling and taking away the damaged deck gear. Below deck there was a hardly turning room in the cabin because of the cameras and associated gear which Christopher and Paul were handling while they were discussing their problems in a low quiet tone, brooding like two hens conniving to lay a joint egg. At seven that evening I had a radio telephone date 
and was apprehensive of getting through it all from 50 miles inland because the naval radio chief said that their patrol boats had difficulty in getting through from the Giba River to the Kachu River, only a few miles farther north, outside which I had floundered among the shoals the day before I entered the Giba. But to my surprise, I got through at once, and after waiting my turn and switching to various frequencies before getting one free from interference, I spoke to Frank Page of The Observer at some length. The Observer was to carry an exclusive report from me each Sunday of my speed run. Then I was able to speak to Sheila, and lastly to Dennis Morden of the BBC Foreign News Service, which was handling my broadcast reports. After this, Louis rushed me ashore in the naval launch to meet the press, then dinner and so to bed. I was glad and relaxed to have the promise of no visitors or commitments of any kind at all until 7pm the following evening. That night, I had ten hours of wonderful sleep. I had forgotten when I last had had more than two or three consecutive hours during the night. Chapter 3. The 4,000 Mile Race On the 12th of January, I was ready to start on my 4,000 mile burn across the Atlantic, as Giles called it. The project weighed me down like lead. I knew I had blundered badly in starting from Bissau. With at least 20 days and 20 nights of continuous hard racing ahead, I had had the stupidity to lumber myself at the start with navigating a long, tricky estuary with, at best, the light airs typical of the tropics and, at worst, calms. Since I arrived in Bissau, I had been noting the speed of any breezes, and they were mostly three to seven knots. How can one sail at 200 miles per day with ghosting breezes like that? Sheila had said forthrightly that I would be crazy not to start from Keo in the estuary mouth, and I knew she was right. But I had said that I was going to start from Bissau to make up the distance across the Atlantic to 4,000 miles, and start from Bissau I would. Meanwhile, at anchor, the hot, humid, tropical air was oppressive. The muddy estuary water made fast sailing seem futile. My only hope was that by starting when the tide began to ebb, I might, if only there was a breeze of, say, ten knots from the north, reach nearly to the sea before the tide turned against me. The distance to the estuary mouth was 47.5 miles, the same as the length of the Thames from Tower Bridge to Whitstable. It was a slow start, but a very pleasant one. Commodore Bastos came aboard to farewell me and presented me with a little silk pennant flying from a miniature standard which had the device of the commander unit on it. With him came Commander Rodriguez and Tenente Alves, who gave me a perfect little model cut out of solid brass of a tank landing craft which Tenente Alves had made himself. It would be difficult to find more kind, helpful and efficient friends than these Portuguese officers. I found the start a strain. For one thing, a patrol craft of the naval commando was escorting me to the starting point. The commando crew, Portuguese and experts in sea life, were watching my every move. It must have seemed interminable to them. I was much slower and much more deliberate than usual after several days of shore contacts, many meetings and many discussions. I always seemed to make a clumsy switch from the talking kind of life ashore to action at sea, or vice versa. First of all, I had to weigh anchor and get it aboard over the lifeline. Then there was the setting of the self-steering and the hoisting of the sails. As usual, after shore repairs, ropes were in the wrong place and sheets unrove, and all this required a lot of fiddling. 
However, a nice light breeze got up and I was full of optimism that I would have a getaway run down to the mouth of the estuary. The starting point I had chosen was 11 degrees 47 minutes north, 15 degrees 33 minutes west, which was out in the estuary five miles south by east of Bissau. The patrol vessel went ahead and marked the spot for me using radar bearings. This was a great help because it enabled me to concentrate on sail raising instead of having to take a series of compass bearings to establish the point. Gypsy Moth went through the starting point at 11.30am. It was hazy and the land in the offing was indistinct, the water a milky, muddy, pale green. Gypsy Moth set off, ghosting towards the sea at five knots, with the big running sail poled out to starboard and five other sails set. The patrol vessel escorted me for several miles after leaving the starting point. I dare say that they wanted to be sure that I did not charge the string of sandbanks a mile to the south. They approached and gave me a cheer and then left. A couple of hours later, after the start, a helicopter turned up overhead and I could see Christopher Doll, Paul Bereff and Louis Noguera aboard. It was a lovely day with a light breeze, though hazy. An hour later, the breeze died and headed Gypsy Moth. I had to drop the pole and running sail and Gypsy Moth was committed to tacking slowly into the eye of light wafts of breeze. The Giba estuary is a wide stretch of water. At 14.30 I was off Ponta Priana, 15 miles from the starting point, with no land in sight to the south, though there was a big three mile long drying sandbank only five miles off. A large school of black fish, pilot whales, 16 to 20 feet long, cavorted around Gypsy Moth, surfacing and diving in all directions in graceful curves. I find that whales always quicken my bloodstream, even small ones like these. I remember the yachts which had been sunk by a flick of a whale's tail, particularly the yacht racing across the Tasman Sea two years ago, which sank so quickly that all seven crew were struggling in the water before they got their rubber dinghy inflated. With no food on board except a few carrots, they were indeed lucky to have been picked up by a steamer days later. The captain of the steamer is reported to have asked, are you carrying out a survival test? The temperature in the cabin was now 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and I longed to cool off with buckets of seawater. But the Giba River was so dirty that no one will use it even for washing, and all the drinking water I took aboard came from Portugal. From dusk onwards, I was hard at it until dawn. The current had turned, and with the turn, the breeze became fluky from the west, so that Gypsy Moth had to tack every few minutes. All the time I was trying to fix my position in order to avoid the shoal patches down the estuary. There were seven lights along the north shore in the 45-mile stretch, placed so that one would be always in range, but they were so faint that it was difficult to see and to locate them. Author's note. That same stretch of the Thames that I mentioned, Tower Bridge to Whitstable, has some 76, excluding jetty lights, barge mooring lights, etc. I picked up the Biombo light at 2200 hours and I could see land behind it when I tacked. There was moonlight above the thick haze. The Biombo light was 24 miles from KO, so Gypsy Moth had not yet completed half the estuary passage. I set off again to the west, but at midnight tacked to the north. The Jamia Fraxio Shoal, which dries out in one place, lay ahead, and I had to establish a position off Ponta Arlete before continuing westwards. I had to do a lot of thinking about how to avoid the unmarked shoals in the dark. My echo sounder was the only navigational aid I could use, 
and changing depths often helped fix position. But some of the shoals were steep to sandbanks, and depth sounding could not give enough warning in the dark. At one point, I had one of these strange, unaccountable happenings that so often occur at sea. I heard an extraordinary noise, as if a million simmering peas were passing along the hull. This continued for 18 minutes and was quite uncanny. The only cause of it that I could think of was a dense shoal of millions of shrimps or fry. I kept on staring into the land but could not see the Ponta Alete light and began to worry. I decided that I must tack away again when I reached a depth of five fathoms because of the rocks lying off Alete. At last, at two in the morning, I saw the light faintly through my night binoculars, though I could not see it without them. I carried on shorewards until the light was bearing due east, which gave me the security of getting out of the estuary without ramming a sandbank. At 0400, Gypsy Moth was due south of the KO light. My log had 40 entries of changes of heading with distances, depths and different winds. Gypsy Moth had only sailed 53 miles, and I had been on the go non-stop for 22 hours, except for once, that is, when I fell asleep at the chart table and woke to find my head on the chart. That was dangerous stuff in such waters, but I believe I was only asleep for one or two minutes. Immediately, the open sea was ahead. I flopped down on my bunk and slept. By half past eight, the topsail was up with the number one jib, mainstaysail, mizzen staysail and mizzen. An hour later, I polled Big Brother out to starboard, but I just could not keep awake and had to drop off to sleep for a few minutes. While I slept, the breeze slowly died away, and I woke with a start to find Gypsy Moth becalmed, bobbing on the sea with much banging of gear, for a few seconds, I could not imagine where I was. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing. And we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Triamaran Spirit, sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Well, that's all for today from The Mariner's Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.